0: radio presents in
2: 1979 director Ridley Scott and star Sigourney Weaver gave the world a harrowing tale of interstellar horror
1: that firmly cemented the genre in the public eye in 2019 Buffalo Trace gives us a bourbon that can't stay on store shelves the movie is alien the whiskey is EH Taylor smallbatch and we'll review them both this is the, the film and, and whiskey, whiskey podcast. And whiskey. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1979 film Alien. Brad, I know you like to give me crap for my anniversary editions of our episodes, but this movie is celebrating its 40th anniversary. It is an icon of sci-fi and horror genres. And, you know, I think it sets us up pretty nicely for Halloween. We are in the week of Halloween So we thought, why not do our first really true horror movie? And to help us with our first horror movie, we are joined in studio today by our frequent collaborator and guest host, Jen Lowers. Jen, how are you doing today?
3: Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show again.
1: Now, Jen, we're
2: super excited to have you. You are our first guest host of season two. How does that feel?
3: Pretty awesome. (laughs) I feel like uh, I just won an award.
2: As you should. You basically did. Your name should have just gotten announced. On The Price is Right.
1: (laughs) So I want to say up front, you know, Brad, you've told me on numerous occasions that you are not a huge horror movie buff. You you know, you don't really care for horror movies. It's not your preferred genre. And so we thought we should bring Jen on because Jen is like the resident horror expert among us. She loves horror films. And I think she's really going to help us dissect this movie.
3: I think all but one of my top five of all time are horror films, probably Alien included. Really? Yep.
1: Oh, so we we're right off the bat. We are dealing with someone who has this movie in their top five films of all time, Brad. That is a very fun statement. <laughs> oh, this does not bode well, Jen.
3: <laughs> no, I'm ready to put on my boxing gloves though.
1: I can't wait. I'm just gonna sit back and let you two go at it. No, I'm really excited for this. I was uh,
2: intrigued to finally sit down and watch this movie. Like like you said, Bob, I'm not. A huge fan of horror. Um, There's a lot of different elements about it that I just don't care for. Mm -hmm. But it was was interesting for me to finally sit down and say, you know what? We're going to expand my film horizons today and watch the movie Alien. I mean, it's a classic of the horror genre. Anytime you hear about sci-fi horror, this is the movie people talk about. So I, I honestly was really excited to watch this movie, despite my
1: misgivings about the genre. So, Brad, is it fair to say, then, that you had not seen this movie prior to this viewing? I had not seen this movie prior to this viewing, Bob. Brad, you want to hear something interesting. You know, I do this to you all the time, but this week's film and next week's film are on that list of movies for me that I don't know if I've ever sat down and watched this movie front to back in one sitting before. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of refreshing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Bob's not quite as cool as he thought he was. That's very true. This is one of those movies that I feel like it was on TV a lot growing up. Um, You could catch it on cable. I've seen like, you know, a ton of the the big key scenes of this movie. And in fact, I know I know for a fact that I'd seen the ending of the movie before. But I actually went to the movie theater a couple weeks ago with Jen. We went and saw this movie as a fathom event because they just re-released it in theaters. And I have to tell you, as a movie going, theater going experience, this was such a fantastic movie to see in the theater.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. It was really amazing to see in the theater and definitely a different experience than watching it at home, especially because of the darkness.
2: Yeah, that's something that I was thinking about as I was watching it in my house. There are certain movies that just do better on the big screen, and Alien definitely feels like a movie that if if you know Fathom ever did another event for it, maybe for its 50th anniversary in 10 years... I would, I definitely would think about going back and watching this in theaters again, just because of how cool it would be to see on the big screen with the massive speakers. And like you said, Jen, the darkness, you know, this is a really dark film. And so it it is something that you would want to watch in the darkness as much as possible. So you can catch as much that's going on on the
1: screen. So, Brad, as you sat down to watch this movie, like, what did you know about it going into it? Were you familiar with, you know, the concept of the movie Alien? Had you heard a lot about it before?
2: Yeah. So I had seen the movie Prometheus before, which now having watched both movies, I think Prometheus kind of spoiled a lot of this movie for me because from what I remember of Prometheus, it feels like a remake of the movie Alien in the same universe. Um, Jen, you could probably confirm or deny that for me, but it it really felt similar, like shot to shot in a lot of different ways, which made me disappointed in Prometheus for not like daring to move on from the original. But yeah, so I did have an idea of the alien, um, premise. I have obviously heard about it in the past. You know, I had seen the scene before of the alien popping out of the chest, you know, on the medical bed. So I, I had an
1: awareness of a lot of the basic premises of the movie. Yeah. You know, I actually, I went to go see Prometheus when it came out in theaters and I was so pumped to see that movie. And having now watched alien in its entirety in one sitting, like I just think alien is such a better made film. It's so much more economical. It's so much more efficient and it asks questions that don't need answers. And I feel like that's where the movie Prometheus like took a wrong turn for me is that it gave all the backstory to the mythology of the Alien franchise, when in reality, what makes this film great is it is a cat and mouse sort of chase. And it's a suspenseful horror ride about people getting picked off one by one on the ship. And I think that in the years since, the franchise of Alien has just gone off in too many different directions, and they've kind of lost sight of what made the first one great.
3: Prometheus tries to answer the questions that shrouded viewers in mystery for 40 years. And I think that um, it just didn't go there and answer those questions.
2: Jen, I totally agree with you. Now having seen both films, there, there's certain parts of the mythology that is it interesting to learn about? You know, sure, maybe. But were
1: those the questions that people had been asking for 40 years? I, you know, I kind of doubt it. So, Brad, maybe we should kind of rein ourselves back in from talking about the extended alien universe. And let's just kind of focus in on this one movie. I am so excited to hear you get into our favorite segment, Brad Explains. So, can you offer our listeners an explanation of the film Alien? So, the movie Alien, it takes place in somewhere in the
2: distant future. A ship named the Nimrod or something like that is... (laughs) flying through the, the the silver galaxy of beautiful space. And there's some sort of ore hauler that's bringing their riches back to Earth. But lo and behold, they find this planet and they explore the planet. And on that planet, they find bad things. And that bad thing tries to suck the face off of one of the members. And instead of just letting the member die, they bring him back into the ship. And in the ship, the thing plants a baby inside of his chest and that baby pops out of his chest in a blood fest. And then that baby gets really big, really fast. (laughs) And instead of taking it on together as a group, they decide to go one by one into this massive freaking ship that only seven people are running. And one by one, they get picked off till we get nice old Sigourney Weaver valiantly fighting for her life, trying to blow up the ship and escape, which she does. But wait, the thing went with her, and she but it's really cold, and it wants to snuggle with her, but she blasted off into the cold abyss of space. The end.
1: Yeah, that was actually an incredibly entertaining Brad Explains. <laughs> Tell me that wasn't pretty much everything that happened. I mean, it's true. Ooh, ooh,
2: ooh. I, I didn't talk about the robot. The one dude's a robot who doesn't give a rip about the rest of the crew. And he just wants to bring the alien back to turn it into a weapon for
1: like humans to kill each other. Yeah. And Brad, I'm really glad that you brought that point up because I don't know at what point you want to talk about this, but I think it needs to be talked about because that's probably the biggest twist in the whole film. And if I'm going to nitpick like one area of the movie that I'm not sure if it completely works, it's turning a character into a robot. And not that they turned him, you know, he was a robot from the beginning, but like we were under the impression that he was kind of an evil human. And then he gets turned into a robot by the plot. I don't I, it kind of pulled me out of the suspense of the movie and took this weird little detour for a while. How did you guys feel about that plot point? That's really interesting. That was actually I loved that twist.
2: Like when it turned out that he was a robot for I will say this. We have imagined robots so differently in the 40 years since Alien that when they popped his head off, I thought another one of the aliens had implanted itself inside of him. Right. And it wasn't until that they said, oh, he's a robot. I was like, oh, that's what robots look like back in 1979. (laughs) Uh, But as far as a plot device, I actually really liked it. I thought that it gave just enough backstory to what's happening, you know, on the colony that they're bringing the ship back to, to go, oh, like, you know, there's larger political forces at play here.
3: I I loved it myself because uh, until it's revealed that Ash is an android, you don't expect it because his actions seem so logical as a science officer. And that's what I think is so brilliant about it is that it brings into question scientists and their views of things and their morals.
1: Yeah, I don't don't hate the twist. And it makes a lot of sense. And when we get into the analysis of the movie, I think it actually serves a much bigger purpose than even we've been hinting at so far. I think the only thing for me that kind of took me out of the film is up to that point... There hadn't even been a mention made that you know the corporation had started using androids. And I understand that all the characters in the movie were kept in the dark about this. But I think as an audience member, I would have at least kind of liked to have known in the back of my mind that androids were being used. And maybe maybe they talked about it and I just missed it. But it was such an out-of-left-field thing for me that wasn't even like on my mind at all that it kind of took me a minute to adjust to this new world of, oh, okay – We're using androids now.
2: Yeah, I will say it it kind of felt like they were trying to install Hal 9000 into the movie. Yep. But like disguise him so that you wouldn't realize, oh, there's actually an evil computer trying to ruin things. So they kind of like smuggled a
1: sci-fi staple into the movie, which I thought was interesting and well done. I think it's really interesting that you bring up HAL Nine Thousand because you know Ridley Scott has talked about the three films that influenced Alien more than anything else, and he has always cited Star Wars: A New Hope. He has cited Two Thousand and One: A Space Odyssey, and then the third one was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the way that they use blood in that film. So, Brad, you're you're definitely onto something. This movie owes a debt to not just the sci-fi films of the '50s, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or the thing from another world, but it also owes a huge debt to Star Wars, especially in some of the, uh, the way that some of the shots are set up, and also to what Stanley Kubrick did in 2001.
3: This movie came out after Star Wars, um, and in fact had difficulty being made just before Star Wars came out, and once it was released, every studio was trying to get their hands on any kind of sci-fi script they thought would be successful at the time. And so Star Wars really helped Alien be made.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think you can see a lot of the influence in Star Wars. Even like at the beginning of this film, the very opening scene, they kind of show you the enormity of the Nostromo from the outside. And it really did remind me of that first opening shot from Star Wars, Brad, that we talked about on that episode, you know, months and months ago.
3: I love the credits because when they open up and you see the ship coming towards you, it reminds you of the Star Wars credits in a way. But then you get on the ship and it's just totally different and becomes a horror film
2: yeah, Jen, I really love the opening scene because, like you said, it it kind of reminds you a little bit of a movie like Star Wars. But it's the music that that just is eerie mm-hmm. and it, it's kind of haunting. And it's this melody that just it it quickly
1: informs your heart that it is in for a wild ride, Brad, you know what was so funny? I'm in the theater and i'm I'm watching that opening scene and the credits and how slowly the title Alien kind of creeps onto the screen. And I'm listening to that music and I'm thinking, wow, this is this this really dissonant, discordant music. What does this remind me of? And it immediately snapped me forward three years in the future, 1982, John Williams opening titles to E.T. Remember, we talked about how that score started off in this weird, eerie spot. And I honestly think John Williams might have been trying to kind of pull a bait and switch You know, with Steven Spielberg, because we talked about how the beginning of ET is almost set up like a horror film. So I'm wondering if they kind of played off of the success of Alien with the start of ET.
2: Yeah, I actually think you could be right on that, especially even if you just look at the titles of the two movies, they are both words for creatures that are foreign to our own planet. You have an alien, or you can call them an extraterrestrial. So, like, they're kind of both playing on this thing. And since ET came out second, You're right. It's almost like they're playing off, oh, the fear of an alien that's going to snatch your body or infiltrate your body and pop out of your chest. Or, oh, it's actually just a nice little flower, plant-loving, eco-friendly guy that heals your wounds and gets you drunk.
1: (laughs) All right. So Brad clearly still hasn't recovered from E.T. yet. So maybe we should move on to talking about Ridley Scott, the director of this film. Ridley Scott has become one of the most famous and well-regarded directors in Hollywood and yet I kind of feel like in some ways Ridley Scott has always been like one movie away from being a legend. All of his movies are really, really good. But I think very few of his movies have reached the level of greatness of like a Spielberg or a Scorsese. And it's, it's kind of interesting to me because he's been working as long as those guys have. But he still somehow hasn't cracked like the stratosphere. But when I go back and watch this movie, I'm reminded of just how great of a director he is. Brad, what did you think about the job that Ridley Scott did with this film.
2: Man, I was amazed with Ridley Scott in this movie. And you are right. His two movies really would be Alien and Gladiator. Um, You know, obviously Blade Runner was really huge as well in 82. But you are correct. Ridley Scott's one of those names where when you talk about great directors, I don't know if I would hear the average person ever say, oh, well, Ridley Scott, can't forget about him. And yet, when you look at three of his best movies, I would say these are three phenomenal movies. So it is interesting that he hasn't cracked that, you know, legendary status.
3: Brad, I totally agree with that. Ridley Scott's one of my favorite directors, and Gladiator, Blade Runner, and Alien are classics, undeniably.
2: Yeah, and specifically with Alien, I think that you have Ridley Scott where he is absolutely airtight in his filmmaking. He moves you from shot to shot seamlessly. He doesn't give you unnecessary information with lighting, with sound, um, with the movement of the camera. Every time the camera moves, it's for a very specific reason, and he does it in a very specific way. And I, I was really impressed with the cinematography of this movie.
1: Yeah, I was too. And, and the direction overall as well. This was a movie that at multiple points, I, I kind of stepped back out of the viewing experience and was just kind of giddy with the filmmaking because this is the work of a person who is in total control of what he's doing. He completely understands every shot that he wants to set up. And what blew me away about this movie was how innovative it was When you you watch films from 40 years ago, and if you want to take Star Wars as an example because it was almost a contemporary to this film... The way that Ridley Scott uses the camera in this film is so vastly different than what you got in a movie like Star Wars. There's a lot of handheld and and sort of documentary feel going on. But then at very key points, he has these long tracking shots. At other points, it's completely stationary. There's this one beautiful shot I keep thinking of, and it's in the scene where Harry Dean Stanton goes looking for the cat and meets his demise And you get a point of view shot from him as he's walking into that room where all those sort of chains are hanging and the camera pushes in through the door and it is just this gorgeous shot. But what blew me away from Ridley Scott was the way he mixed different kinds of cameras when the search and rescue team goes out to the the abandoned ship to see what where the distress signal is coming from, he actually shows, as the camera's point of view, the sort of like security cam footage from inside their spacesuits. And I was really shocked by that and kind of blown away because that was the kind of, you know, inventive thinking that you weren't seeing on screen in 1979. I totally agree. I'm thinking of a
2: shot near the end of the movie when, you know, Sigourney Weaver is the only crew member left and she's kind of like stumbling through the halls and the camera's moving fast. You know, it's it's tracking away from her. But he does this really cool thing where eventually the camera starts slowing down. It's still moving away from her. But the it's zooming into her face and you get extremely close with her and it gives you the sense of motion that she's still moving forward, but it slowly captures the horror and fear on her face. And so you kind of get this frantic motion of, you know you're still moving, but you as the audience member are being drawn into the fear that is in her eyes, in the sweat on her brow, in the jerky movements as she looks back to see if the alien's behind her. She looks back forward to see if it's in front of her. It's a really beautiful way of filming fear.
3: The expressions of the actors and actresses in this movie really convey their fear. And I also think that, That kind of documentary-style filmmaking just wasn't done 40 years ago before this movie.
1: So maybe this is a good time to kind of get into talking about Sigourney Weaver and her performance in this movie. And we can touch on some of the other players in the film, but this is very clearly and very obviously Sigourney Weaver's movie. Brad, what did you think of her performance in this film? I was really blown away, Bob. I just could
2: not get over the sincerity with which she played her role. You know where she she really cares about the other members of the crew, but she also takes her job very seriously. And you kind of see that dilemma at the start, where she kind of comes off, you know, a little mean when she enforces the protocol to quarantine them outside of the ship. Yeah, and she comes off in kind of a cold way. But I think what Ridley Scott does well is that he chooses to film her as she tells them that she will not allow them in. She's not this disembodied voice coming over the loudspeaker. You're not spending time just with the people who are outside the ship. You see her as she's delivering these lines. And I think that she gives a depth of sincerity with her eyes that convinces you that she genuinely is a good person who wants to let them in, but knows the danger of what might happen if she lets them in.
3: So I have to say Sigourney Weaver's character, Ellen Ripley, is probably my favorite female character of all time. And especially in a horror film, traditionally, especially before 1979, when this movie came out, women in horror movies are portrayed as idiots. You're constantly going, no, I wouldn't do that. Who would do that? But the whole time you're watching Ellen Ripley in this movie, she's logical. She's pragmatic. She does what anyone in the audience would want to do in those situations. It's not that she's a woman that's at the center of her character. It's that she's a, a pragmatic, rational person who's making the right decisions scene to scene. So you can relate to her no matter what gender you are.
1: So, Jen, let me ask you this then, because, like, you're, you're a huge horror movie fan, and, like, one of the biggest horror movie tropes is the idea of, like, the final girl. You know, like, in, in every horror movie, the serial killer, the slasher kills everybody, and then there's one final girl left. And there's usually, like, rules that go along with it, like, she's the virginal one or something like that. And I feel like for all of the advances this movie made, you still kind of have the final girl. Do you think that this movie like falls into that trap or is it kind of transcending it or subverting it somehow?
3: I think it's transcending it because the last girl is usually there in a horror film by coincidence, by chance, because they happen to get away and not because of the logical decisions that they make from moment to moment.
2: Yeah, I think the other way in which she kind of transcends that is that she isn't killed in the end of the movie. You know, she fights and survives. And like Jen was saying, how does she fight and survive? She uses her logic. She notices how cold the alien is. She puts herself in, you know, to a spacesuit so that she can continue to lower the temperature. And she uses her intuition to say this is probably what the alien is going to do. I know how I can maneuver him so that I can launch him out of the hatch. And eventually blast him away with, you know, the afterburners of the space shuttle. Like, she she really kind of kicks it into sixth gear at the end of the movie when she realizes that, like, she has to turn to desperate measures to kill this alien. Mm-hmm.
3: Helen Ripley is a problem solver. She's solving a problem in half of these scenes, probably. And I think that's really cool because I love that scene where everyone's in the room and they're all freaking out. And then she goes, come on, let's just figure this out.
1: Well, and I think you guys are touching on something that's really important about her character, too. And it's that she's the only one that's thinking like the audience thinks like throughout the whole movie. And I was kind of wondering to get your guys opinion on this, too. Like, is is it a deficiency in the script? Because every character that's not named Ellen Ripley is kind of an idiot. Like, in in the sense that they're they, they don't seem scared enough of the fact that this alien creature is just hiding out on their ship somewhere. And they're like, oh, I'm kind of uneasy about this, but maybe we should go hunting. And even after the first person gets killed, they're like, all right, yeah, we should really find this thing and kill it because it's going to murder us. But they still don't really seem terrified enough. And then you have Ripley who's like, am, am I the only person here who sees the danger that we're actually going up against?
3: I don't hear anybody saying nothing around I'm this thinking place.
0: unless somebody has got a better idea We'll proceed with Dallas's
2: plan what and then don't blame the others <laughs> no you're out of your mind you got a better idea yes I say that we abandoned the ship.
3: We get the shuttle and just get the hell out of here. We take our chances and just hope that somebody picks us up.
0: The shuttle won't take four.
1: Well,
2: then why don't we draw straws I'm not throwing in? any
1: straws. I'm for killing that damn thing right now. Ugh.
2: Okay. Well, let's talk about killing it.
1: I guess I'm just wondering, like, did you guys think that the other characters in the movie... Were just poorly written? Or how did you interpret them?
3: I definitely think that she was the only one acting in a logical, rational way. But to me, it wasn't an issue because it's a commercial spaceship. I don't think that they're necessarily after geniuses. Hmm. They were sort of just like those two guys just kept talking about, oh, I think we need a raise.
2: Yeah, I was going to say kind of a similar thing to Jen. I think they do a good job of establishing the fact that there's only a few people on the ship that you know, are, are science-type people that are you know, more logical and rational. And they really do a good job of setting up from the very start that all of the other characters outside of Ash and Ripley you know, are very emotional. They, they wear their colors on their sleeve. Um, and it doesn't mean that I don't like the other characters. I, I do think that they act poorly in a lot of those situations, but it doesn't surprise me that they act poorly. But I would agree with you, Bob. I, I do wish that some of the other characters were
1: more were more rational than they are portrayed. Yeah. And for me, it, it's not even so much that like I wish they were more rational as it is that the only person that I thought was reacting with actual fear was the character of Lambert played by Veronica Cartwright. She gets very terrified very quickly. And I'm like, yes, if I was there, I would absolutely be as terrified as you. But I didn't think that their uh, reaction to having this thing loose on the ship was quite how I would react.
3: I actually thought that their reactions evolved throughout the film. I think that they evolved with the size of the creature as it evolved from one to the next. And I think that I noticed a big difference in some of the characters' fear after the alien was full-grown.
2: It may just be that they were a little bit too uh, (laughs) well-lubricated with the the golden nectar of the gods that we like to call whiskey to fully appreciate the problem that they were facing. So how about we join them in partaking of this beautiful thing called whiskey? Yeah, let's get to this E.H. Taylor small batch. All right, so today we are drinking E.H. Taylor small batch. Now, Bob, can you tell our lovely listeners of the Film and Whiskey
1: Nation anything about this beautiful whiskey? Yeah, so E.H. Taylor is a Buffalo Trace product. It's a fairly affordable bourbon. In the state of Ohio, it's going to set you back $40. The problem is that, like Weller and the whole Weller line, the E.H. Taylor line has a really dedicated following. It especially blew up. Uh, years and years back, there was a tornado that uh, ripped down you know, one of the Rick houses, and E.H. Taylor turned it into a huge marketing thing where they released a bunch of bottles called Tornado Survivors, and there was a really limited availability for a while, and so E.H. Taylor blew up. And now they only really do a release of E.H. Taylor, at least in Ohio, around once a year, and these bottles fly off the shelves. There are different levels of E.H. Taylor. There's small batch and single barrel and all that kind of stuff. Today, we're just going with the small batch, which is sort of their entry level offering. So, this is a bottled and bond bourbon. So, we know it's 100 proof. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this E.H. Taylor small batch? Man, I don't feel like I've been able to say this in a while. This is a classic bourbon. This is so funny because the first thing I wrote down in my notes classic bourbon notes. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right, man. I just, it's oak. It's caramel, it's spices, I got some cinnamon, some pepper on there. It just, it really smells like what you would expect a bourbon to smell like. Yeah,
2: having done this podcast for long enough now, this is what I would expect out of a bourbon. I I can't imagine it smelling any differently. Jen, what are you picking up on the nose?
3: I'm picking up some warmth, apple, Mm. a little bit of fruit, some cinnamon, some caramel, maybe a little bit of butterscotch. Like a bunch of different random stuff basically all at once. I'm loving it.
2: I'm going to go ahead and give this an 8.5 on the nose. This is a very impressive
1: whiskey thus far. I'm excited to get into it. So I'm actually going to out myself right now and say that I actually sampled this also last night before we recorded this. And I tried it in three different glasses for nosing because I can't quite pin down what the best glass for nosing a bourbon is yet. So I just took my sample and I poured it into three different glasses. And I will say that... I started to pick up some more like astringent notes on it. It smelled a little bit like paint. And I wasn't like crazy about some of the notes I got in certain glasses. So here on the Film and Whiskey podcast, we are trying this bourbon out of rocks glasses. No Glen Cairns, nothing with a weird angular sort of look. We're just trying it out of rocks glasses. Brad, I'm going to go ahead and give this a 7 out of 10. You gave it an 8.5. Jen, what would you give it on the nose?
3: I'd give it an 8.5. I really like the nose, and it's definitely complex in a good way.
1: So I guess that means it's time for us to take a sip. Yeah,
2: right as that touches my tongue, you get that nice caramely sweetness. And as I kind of swish it around and get it to the back of my mouth, you get some of those peppery kind of cinnamon notes that Jen was talking about. I am really enjoying this.
1: Yeah, I think it's funny you say that because I had almost the opposite experience in terms of like how the flavors presented themselves. I thought that it was really spicy up front, like on the front of my tongue. It was a ton of, of pepper um, and baking spices. And then in the middle of my palate, it was really, really sweet. And then it had sort of a classic bourbon finish to it. But yeah, my experience went almost opposite of yours, but I enjoy it just as much as you do.
3: I love the taste. I think that it's a bourbon that I could, it's an easy sipper. Um, I would would sip on this for a couple of hours. And I can't say that about all bourbons, but it's complex, but not too strong. Definitely something that I would use to introduce somebody to a bourbon.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. So I'm going to go ahead and give it an 8 on the taste. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give it an 8 as well. Uh, The nose definitely was like slightly better, but this taste is still really, really good. All right, so what do you think about the finish then, Brad? Because, I mean, it it goes along with the taste. Like I said, I thought that it was a pretty standard bourbon finish. It was really spicy for me, but it, it didn't have a lasting bitterness to it. I did get kind of a slightly medicinal taste to it. When I tried it out of that angular glass last night, I almost got like a bitters flavor, like an orange peel or something. But out of the rocks glass, it, it really does just taste like a classic bourbon. And that goes all the way through to the finish, at least
3: for me. I love the finish. I could, It's, it's something that I d- still taste in my mouth now and don't mind at all. And in fact, I'm really enjoying that I'm still tasting it.
2: I will say for me, the finish kind of sours at the end just a tiny bit. Um, It has the good flavors on the back end, but I am struggling a little bit with the finish. I'm going to give it a 7 on the finish.
1: Yeah, I also gave it a 7 on the finish. I did finally pick up on some of those fruit notes that Jen was talking about, and I think that's a good thing, but I did have a little bit of a struggle with that slightly medicinal taste to the finish, so I'm going to give it a 7.
3: I didn't pick up on the medicinal thing that you guys are talking about, but I, I did pick up on some richness- like sort of like a dark chocolate kind of thing. Mm. But I also appreciated that it wasn't too oaky or too spicy after. So I'm I'm gonna give the finish a 7.5.
1: All right, and that takes us to overall balance. Now this is the nose, taste, and finished kind of all wrapped together as one thing. I think overall, this is a really, really well-balanced whiskey. Uh, nothing stands out in a negative way, but I also would say that nothing really stands out in an overly positive way, it's just a really solid bourbon. So I think I would give it an eight on the balance. And I'm really curious to see what you would say about it, Brad. Honestly, for all the same reasons, I'm going to give it a seven
2: and a half. Uh, I think that the balance is good. It did struggle for me as it went on um, from the nose all the way to the finish. But overall, I I was very impressed with this. I'm going to give it a seven and a half.
3: I'm going to give it a seven because what I got on the nose wasn't what I got on the finish necessarily.
1: Well, that brings us to overall value. Now, like I said, we we were rounding up here and saying this would cost you $40 in the state of Ohio. Uh, the website for the Ohio Liquor Agency actually has it listed as 3806 However, it is really difficult to find this at face value. A lot of people are buying this on the secondary market or they're in a state where it's not price controlled. So we can only evaluate this on the price that we paid for it. And in full disclosure, we actually did not pay for it. One of our fantastic listeners, uh, Jamie Meller, and he's on Instagram at Lawyered, donated this sample to us. So I, first of all, I want to say thank you to Mr. James Meller for this wonderful sample. What a guy. What a guy. We have fantastic listeners. Yeah. film and Whiskey Nation coming through big time. But we can only evaluate this based on what we would be paying if we were going to buy this, and that is $38.06. So, Brad, what kind of a score would you give this based on that figure?
2: Honestly, I'm going to give it a a 7.5 on value. This is a really, really good bourbon that if you ever have a friend who's like, yeah, I drink a lot of scotch, or I drink a lot of Jack Daniels, or I drink a lot of Crown Royal, but I want to try bourbon. What should I drink? This is a phenomenal bourbon for you to introduce your friends to.
3: On value, I would give it an eight. I'm judging it based on would I go to the store and buy this myself? And I would buy it.
1: I think that's the bar that we really try to set here is would you buy this for yourself at this price? And I think all of us would say yes. I don't think this is an astronomically priced bourbon. I mean, I think it's fairly priced. If it was $50, I think I'd definitely be reevaluating it a little bit. But at $40, no, this is a really, really good bourbon. And that brings me out to a total of 37 out of 50. Brad, what's that bringing you out to? I'm at a 38.5. 38.5. And Jen Lowers.
3: All right, so for the total score for me, I'm coming out to a 38.5.
1: Yeah, so you're right in line with Brad, and we're all very close to each other. If we average out... My score and Brad's score, that puts us at a 37.75 or a, what is that, 75.5? 75.5. This is a really good bourbon. Brad, would you recommend it? Highly recommend this bourbon.
3: I would also highly recommend this bourbon. It's definitely one I would have on hand, especially if I had friends over who told me they weren't familiar with bourbon.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really good whiskey to kind of just cozy up on the couch and watch a movie with. Which means it's time for us to do the same. Let's continue talking about the 1979 classic, Alien. All right, so that was E.H. Taylor, Small Batch. We're going to continue talking about the movie Alien. But before we do that, it's time for our newest and probably most fun segment, Hot Takes. This is where we find one star reviews of these classic movies that we're talking about on the podcast and we get Brad's reaction to them. And today we actually have the benefit of getting Jen's reaction to them too. Bob, you need to get better at your announcer voice. Oh, do you want me to do you want me to give a good intro? Oh, yeah, yeah, hot takes. Now it's time for hot takes. <laughs> yes, yes, there we go. <laughs> All right, here's our first one star review. It comes from Saint Just on IMDb. And the title is, What Do People See in This Film? What do people see in this film? I am not one for horror films, though I do like this alien stuff. Nothing happens in the film. Nothing. We spend most of the time waiting and waiting for something to happen. This movie could have been cut to half an hour easy. There's a saying that says, Fear is being scared of the unknown. Something that The X-Files has done really well. Unfortunately, this film has tried to do this too and has gone too far. Rather than waiting for something to happen while on the edge of our seats, we wait and wait and wait and wait. We barely get to see the Alien and the special effects are pretty poor. Sure, it was a long time ago, so we can't expect too much. But look at Star Wars, which came out around the same time. They were much better than Alien, and Lucas had half the money. Alien is simply a boring movie that deserves no credit. One star.
2: <laughs> so can I, can I awkwardly give them credit for one of their takes? You like Star Wars' special effects better? I think you can objectively say that Star Wars' special effects were better. Um, Partially, the, the one thing I'll specifically say is the explosion of the ship at the end looked like it was from the 1950s. And when you look at how well they do explosions in Star Wars, that was the only point of the movie where I was like, oh, this movie's 40 years old. Other than that, I thought the special effects were pretty well done.
3: I think if we're looking specifically at the creatures from Star Wars, I prefer the alien over all of the creatures in Star Wars, even though that's one of my favorite films also. But overall, I would agree the special effects in Star Wars are better as a whole.
1: Yeah, I think I'd agree with both of you. The explosion of the ship at the end of Alien really is, it looks terrible 40 years later. However, I will agree with Jen, too. I think the creature design is better here, and I think the fact that Ridley Scott knows what he's doing with shrouding it in darkness, kind of like what Steven Spielberg does with the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, it really adds to the effect of that creature design. So, hey, maybe that one-star review wasn't too bad after all. Well, it was a pretty bad review. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and our final, our second and final hot take for today comes from Harry Plinkett, 14, and the title of his review, Twisted. Scott is a lousy director, a great visual artist, but not good at directing. Giger is a degenerate who painted monsters and hellish images all his life, and the whole horror genre is by and large a pit of degeneracy. This film is an effective horror, and it does impress visually in many ways. It also has a memorable soundtrack, but at the end of the day, it is just nasty And I am sick and tired of nasty imagery poisoning my mind. Shove it down the toilet. One star. You filthy degenerates, get off my lawn. I love how this guy, like, can't actually get through a sentence without crediting the movie for being really, really well done. But just (laughs) essentially saying he doesn't like it or agree with it. But it's like every sentence. Hey, this is a great movie. Uh, Also, it's degenerate.
2: Yeah, it's. It's interesting to me because you didn't necessarily see reviews like this for The Dark Knight, but it's interesting how you get into a specific genre like horror, and I think you get certain people who are going to critique this movie based on the entire, you know, film library of horror and not just the movie Alien. And I think that's really unfair to do to any movie. You know, you can't just pigeonhole a movie based on the genre it is. You have to let the movie stand
1: on its own legs. Well, this guy actually hinted at something that I think we can segue into, and that is the design elements of the film. He was talking about H.R. Giger, who designed the alien creature and a lot of the interior of the spaceship as well. And Jen actually has been, like, chomping at the bit to talk about the design elements of this movie because the imagery really is iconic. So, Jen, take it away
3: the imagery is definitely my favorite thing about this movie. I could have 20 pictures right now of just images in my mind from this movie hanging on the walls in my house. I love the face huggers. I love the chestbursters. Um, I love that alien that's sitting in the chair, which was somehow nicknamed the space jockey in the making of that movie. And I just love everything about it. I think it's terrifying. It's something that I've never seen before outside of this movie. And um, also Giger insisted that the alien have no eyes so that it would appear more cold and emotionless. And I think that was a really good move.
1: Yeah. I mean, this, this is one of those films where the alien creature truly does look alien. And they do a really good job of disguising its whole body. You know, you really just get a lot of profile shots and a lot of the shots of the head. And so it doesn't, for most of the time, it doesn't look like a person in an alien costume. And what I really love is the sort of even more gross aspects they add to it, like the fact that it bleeds acid or the crazy amounts of, like goop and saliva that are coming off of it at all times. It's a really fascinating creature design. And I think you could really go in on like psychoanalyzing what's going on because of the way that it has that thing that shoots out of its mouth. It's this weirdly like sexual thing. There's a lot of like people getting impregnated with the face hugger. And I think Giger was going for that on purpose, but it's super unsettling and I think really effective.
3: So the guy who wrote the script Dan O'Bannon, he actually said that his goal was to make the men in the audience feel as uncomfortable as possible. Because prior to 1979, there were a lot of horror films coming out like Last House on the Left that had violent rape scenes, and that he felt like the goal was to make women feel uncomfortable. And he really wanted to turn that around. So he he tried to evoke imagery of of pregnancy, of rape.
1: I think it's super effective. I mean, Every aspect of the way this alien invades you, it it's a violation. I mean, whether it's, you know, going down your throat to impregnate you or if it's whatever it does to people's heads, eating the brains or whatever, it's this like weird phallic symbol of something that's like penetrating. And yeah, I thought it was really effective. Brad, do you have thoughts on the creature design? Honestly, one of my first thoughts
2: when you were talking about the creature design was what is another, you know, character that is meant to be fearful and meant to induce a state of horror in people. And I think that you need not look any further than Alien versus Predator. And when you look at the Predator character design, he's just not as terrifying as the Alien. He's more familiar, he's more humanoid. There's something about the character of the Alien that is so utterly foreign that every aspect of him is truly horrifying. And I think that his character design was brilliant
1: if the goal was to make people, you know, quake in their seats. Brad, I think that's a great point. And you actually bring up something that I think we should talk about, which is the cultural impact this movie has had. You know, without Alien, I don't think you get a Predator film. And certainly Alien was influenced by movies like Jaws. I mean, this is essentially Jaws in space. But I think that you can't underestimate what Ridley Scott's film Alien did for the sci-fi and horror and eventually even the action genres as well. What do you think about, you know, some of the movies that you've seen that remind you of Alien? The crazy thing to me about watching Alien was that I was like
2: a quarter way into the movie and I was like, wait a second, I feel like I've seen this before. And as somebody who watches very little horror, and by that, I mean, I've probably seen... Two to four movies before Alien that could be considered true horror films, I immediately was like, I feel like I've seen this movie before. And so I looked back in my brain and I thought about it and I was like, wait a second. Deep Blue Sea is literally a remake of Alien, but instead of an alien, it's a shark. And instead of being in space, they are in the Pacific Ocean or somewhere. I think they're in the Pacific. It's literally the exact same movie, except for those slight little differences.
3: I think this is a story that's been done again and again and again. Just like you said, Prometheus is essentially just another remake of Alien.
1: Yeah, this is like your your typical monster movie. And who's to say where it started? I think at this point they all influence each other. But this is the first film that I can recall seeing some like really hardcore sci-fi tropes, like things getting sucked out into space. I don't recall seeing a movie that came out before this where like somebody opens a hatch and things get sucked out into space. Like, and that's something that you see all through the Alien franchise and in tons and tons of other space, you know, set films. Well, even in another form of media, I can think of tons of video games that
2: involve sucking things out of a hatch into space you know, to kill your enemies. Like, I think about Halo 2. That's, like, literally one of the first missions. You kill the bad guys by sucking them out into space. Like, this is a common trope in the sci-fi genre
1: that transcends movies. All right, before we wrap up here, I do want to say something about what I think is going on with the the larger meaning of this movie, if there is one, because at the end of the day, it really is just a fun Kind of, I mean, it, it's a rollicking good time watching these people get picked off one by one by this alien on this spaceship. But I really love the insertion of the Ash character as an android because I think it hammers home the point that this movie is called Alien, but to me, it was really about what it is that makes us human. You know, you have on one hand this alien creature that no one understands, that is called the perfect organism, that adapts and survives without any semblance of remorse or morals. And then on the other hand, you have Ash, the android, who has been programmed to value the mission above human lives. And, you know, even after they kill Ash and they kind of revive him to ask him about the mission that he's sabotaged, he says about the alien, I admire its purity.
0: How do we kill it, Ash? There's got to be a way of killing it. How, how do we do it?
1: You can't. That's bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility.
3: You admire it.
1: I admire its purity.
3: A survivor. And clouded. By conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Look, I'm, I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug. Last what? I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies.
1: And so, on one hand you have the alien, on the other you have the android. And I think what Scott, really, Scott, is doing here is he's really drilling down deeply into these things that make us human it is our morality it is the fact that these people weep and mourn for each other it is the fact that they feel fear and at the end of the day it's it's really skeptical i think of of the sort of technological advances that it portrays in the movie like it clearly doesn't think the android has the the upper hand from a moral standpoint and i think it reminded me of what it is that we champion about humanity and what makes us who we are. I will say, though, that android had the upper
2: hand if the goal was to spin really fast. <laughs> <laughs> and to shove a magazine down someone's throat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was the moment where, like, I I guess I'm going back to the very start of the podcast and talking about Ridley Scott as a director. But, like, even as he was, like, shoving the magazine into her mouth and he was pushing away the other people, I was like, man, how could a human... You know, gag somebody so easily with one hand and push the other ones off,
1: I, and I still had no idea that he was an android. Like, but is but isn't it super interesting how they draw that that one little subtle comparison even between the android and the alien? Because the way the alien you know kills people is by putting something in their mouth and killing them from the inside out, and the way that Ash is trying to take down Sigourney Weaver is by stuffing that magazine down her throat. Like somehow his first instinct was to do the same thing the alien does and i think that really just drives home the point that on this spaceship there is human and there is alien and this movie is championing what it means to be human
2: yeah so i think the beauty of this movie you know if there is anything beautiful in it is that you see the relationships between these humans grow and and form as they face adversity And I think that's probably one of the most important things about the human condition is that when push comes to shove, humans have this relentless drive to bond together to overcome the problems that they face. And and I think that really hits at what you were talking about, Bob, that humanity's morals and values are important. And it is important for people to have an overarching good that governs their lives. And one of those overarching goods is the fact that we need to bond together and help each other rather than tear each other down.
3: I also love that the characters have a lot of complexity. Even Dallas, his decisions that he makes throughout the film aren't necessarily consistent morally or emotionally. He wants to bring Kane back onto the ship, but then later when that dead body is launched out into space, he's kind of just like Anybody have any last words? Hmm. Nobody says anything, and he just launches the body out. I think that someone who's so compassionate in the beginning and then someone who later doesn't know how to react in that situation is realistic because as human beings, we're really just making decisions moment to moment, and that's what this movie's about. It's about your morals, your emotions, and the decisions you make from moment to moment problem-solving in your life.
1: And she drops the mic on us yet again, Brad.
2: Yeah, that I think that really is a good place to end things on the movie Alien. But the final thing we have to do is give it a score. So, Bob, Jen, what what
1: kind of a score would you guys give Alien? Well, I want to throw it over to Jen first because we know this is in her top 5 of all time. So, if she gives it like a 6 out of 10, I'm going to be really confused.
3: So, I wow, I thought about this for about 3 days straight after we watched this movie at the Fathom event. And I was thinking, what score would I give this? It's one of my favorite films, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a 10 out of 10. And I was really looking for things I could pick apart about it. Some of the special effects came to mind that didn't necessarily hold up now. But then I thought about how, how it was made 40 years ago. And it still holds up, I think, even though some of those special effects we could do better now. And I can't fault it for anything that I can really think of right now. And so I would give it a 10 out of 10.
1: Yeah, so I'm kind of in the same boat Jen is. You know, I did have a few small faults with this movie. I thought that the way the characters reacted to some of the things was a little eye-rolling. But you have that in any horror movie. That's just a horror movie trope. You know, some of the special effects are a little bit dated. Absolutely. But I was gripped from this movie from minute one. You know, I do think that we have... Redefined in some ways what makes a horror movie in the last 40 years. I don't know that I would say this movie terrified me down to my core, but it was really, really suspenseful and the jump scare still worked on me. Jen can attest I jumped like three or four times in the course of the movie. So it holds up. And I don't know if I would give it a 10 out of 10 because I don't think it's perfect, but darn it if I'm going to give it a 9.5 out of 10. This movie still works and it is still worth talking about as an absolute icon of the genre.
2: Man, yeah, I I am not surprised with either of those scores. Honestly, in my head, I played the game of, like, what is Jen going to give it? What is Bob going to give it? And I put you guys both at a 10 and a 9.5 that you guys gave it. For me, I, I agree 100% with what you guys are saying. You know, sure, is some of the special effects dated? Yes. Is that okay? Yeah, you know, it's not the end of the world. You kind of expect that when you watch an older movie. I am going to give Alien an 8.5 and honestly I would give this movie a 9 but I do have a bias against the horror genre it is not my favorite genre I don't like how it makes me feel I don't enjoy I I can't quite put words to the things that it evokes in me but there's the part of me that I look at the horror genre and and I'm not somebody who's going to say don't make horror films Because I think horror films have a lot to offer the film industry. But my struggle is, do we really have to go to these places of horror and terror and fear to learn the lessons that horror films teach us? And I know that Jen would probably say, yes, we do. And I would bet that Bob might say, yes, we do as well. I just don't know if we do. And I I really do struggle with horror films in general but it doesn't stop me from giving this movie an 8.5. It is directed well. The script is tightly wound. It is suspenseful. It is interesting. It gives you just enough of a backstory to let you know what's going on. But it doesn't give you so much that you get bogged down in it. I mean, this is a phenomenal movie that I was
1: very impressed with. Brad, I actually really appreciate that you said all that, man. That was uh, that was a pretty good summing up of your thoughts on horror. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. Brad gives it an eight and a half. I give it a nine and a half. Jen gives it a 10. That brings the average for me and Brad to a nine out of 10 or a 90 out of 100. I think we both agree, you know, whatever our thoughts on the horror genre, that this film holds up and it is still effective to this day. But we want to know what you have to say. So please get on social media. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, or on Twitter at Film Whiskey. (laughs) Or you could give us a call. Please call our call-in line. Interact with us. Leave us a voicemail. We'd love to play it on air. Our number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. Brad, why don't you tell the people what we'll be back reviewing next week? Next week, we will be reviewing 1989's When Harry Met Sally. I'm so excited to talk about that one Brad because I also had not ever seen that film so I'm still in the Brad G shoes for another week isn't it beautiful my friend (laughs) for the film and whiskey podcast I'm Bob Book I am Brad G
3: and I'm Jen Lowers
1: we'll see you next time
0: Hosts at Robots Radio get a lot of questions from people who are interested in starting their own podcasts about how they can start, how they can grow their audiences, how they can create good content, even what microphone to use and what software to use, things like that. Well, we're changing things up at Robots Roundtable to talk and share about the things that we've learned, the things that work and the things that don't. We're sharing with you our actual real-world experience. How can you launch a show like the Fallout Lorecast and get as many listeners as we did early on and rock it to the top of the charts on Apple Podcasts? How do you create a show in such a crowded marketplace as it is today, as opposed to 10 years ago? We're getting together every week to share our answers with you. Just look up The Podcast Professor. A robots round table with the hosts from Robots Radio